I, I love snowstorms. I really do. I love snowstorms on Saturday night because it allows me as a pastor to know who the dedicated people of our church are. <laughs> so I've jotted all of your names down while I was sitting over there worshiping. You're all on my list. You're the dedicated. You're the hardcore. You're the committed. Yes. Okay. I'm just kidding. I didn't take a list. Okay, maybe I did. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you are new with us today, my name is Kevin. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, just one quick announcement I want to add to the video is right after the service here today, uh, there's a special lunch that's happening upstairs. So if you don't have any lunch plans, you're more than welcome to join us for that. This is being put on by our missions team. And we're going to be talking about, um, my wife and I are going to share about the recent trip that we took to Beirut, Lebanon. And my daughter and I are going to be sharing about the recent trip that we took to, uh, to Peru to Lima, Peru, with Compassion Canada. So if you don't have any lunch plans, we'd love for you to come and, and hear about what we learned and, and how God really stretched us and grew us on those two trips. Um, this morning, I was having a little bit of a moral dilemma. I, I've been up since about 5 a.m. So I've had about 12 cups of coffee. So today's sermon is going to be awesome. Okay. But I was up at 5 a.m. kind of monitoring my phone, wondering what do we do with the weather? Right? Do you cancel a service? Do you not cancel? Do you cancel? Do you not cancel it? Do you combine? All of that stuff. And now last week we made the decision to cancel the early service, get everyone into the later one, because it was like, it's freezing rain. Right? So ice is ice. You gotta do that with ice. But you know, it's snow. So you kind of just expect snow in January. It's Canada. Right? So I was really happy that I finally got some use on these new winter tires that I bought, because I was feeling like I got ripped off spending $700 on a new pair of winter tires, that, and we were getting no snow this year. So I'm so glad I bought those. And, uh, but I'm sitting there, kind of, you know, having my morning coffee, looking outside, looking at all this snow piling up, and I'm, I'm having this moral dilemma. When do I go outside and turn on my snowblower? Because it's Sunday morning. Now, in my neighborhood, I'm the youngest person who lives on my street. And I'm not that young, okay? We actually have... A lot of retired people who live on our street, and kind of one of the things I love to do is I love to go out with my snowblower, and I take care of everyone else's driveways. It's just fun for me. I love to be outside in the snow. I love, I love this snowblower. I bought it, like, in April. It was, like, the best $400 I ever spent. Like, it was springtime. It was beautiful. There was one left at the hardware store. I bought it. Oh my goodness, I should have bought one of these 25 years ago. You know, it was amazing. I love it. So I'm outside and I'm whistling and I'm out there and I like to do all my neighbors. If the plow comes and the big, you know, piles are in front of all my neighbors' driveways, I just like to bless my neighbors that way. But I'm sitting there, but it's Sunday morning. I know everyone is sound asleep. Sound asleep. But I got to get to church. And not only do I got to get to church, I tend to get to church a little earlier than everybody else, right? So. When, when's the line? Where's the line of where it's okay for Pastor Kevin to wake up the neighborhood with his snowblower? So I figured I'm going to be very strategic. So I brought my wallet out with me. I don't normally bring my wallet out when I'm shoveling or doing snowblowing, but I brought it out with me because in my wallet, I keep about 12 of those join me at church cards. And I leave them in restaurants. I give them to waitresses. I leave them in taxis and things like that. But I figured if anyone's going to come out and yell at me at 6 o'clock in the morning for snow blowing, well, I'll be like, hey, it's awesome. You're up. <laughs> Why don't you join me at church? <laughs> no one did it. No one came out. But I was prepared. 
So I was, I was ready. Always be ready to invite someone to church. That's why those cards are there to help you out with that. So we are in week three of our 2020 vision series. And what we've been doing for the past couple of weeks and what we're going to conclude with today is we're just spending some time adjusting our vision. Right? It's so easy for us as Christians individually or corporately as a church family to just get used to the way things are. It's very easy to just get used to the traditions of the Christian faith, to get used to the, this is the way we do church, this is the way I live out my faith, this is the way I live out my life, and we just can kind of, if we're honest, get stuck in some ruts. And sometimes if we're not careful, those ruts can actually start leading us away from the true mission of God, of why God actually gave the world the church. See, God has a purpose for this. And ultimately, we have to be really honest with each other. Is it doesn't matter what you think the purpose of it is. It doesn't even matter what I think the purpose of the church is. All that matters is what God thinks the purpose of the church should be. So we've been spending a few weeks just getting realigned, checking our vision, making sure we're on track. And we've been talking about kind of the ministry here of of our church and how we tweak and we guide and we change and we move things so that we can stay on vision, God's vision for his church in the world. We started the series off in week one. We started with the conclusion. What is the end game? What is the goal? Everything we do as a church is to align us around the simple goal that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus did not come to entertain religious people. He did not come to simply bless church people. He didn't come so we can have amazing potlucks, and I love our potlucks. But Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. And what we saw in Luke's gospel is Luke directly ties in the mission of Jesus of seeking and saving the lost to hearing the words from God, well done, faithful servant. You see, when you and I end our lives, every single human being will stand before the throne of God and we will give an account of our life. I hope I'm going to hear Well done, faithful servant. But what's the criteria to hear well done? Is it, I saved up enough money, I put enough money into my RRSPs and my my RESPs and my LMNOPs and all these other banking things I don't understand? Is it simply because I didn't kill anybody? I never cheated on my wife? What's the list? What's the criteria to hear well done? The apostle uh, Luke, in his gospel, directly ties the mission of Jesus of seeking and saving the lost to hearing the words, well done. So we want our life individually to be centered around that mission of seeking and saving the lost. We want our church to be centered around the mission of seeking and saving the lost. That's the end game. That's the goal. So everything we do leads to that. The second week, we talked about the greatest commandment. This is one of those passages in your Bible that it's, 
it's, it's the greatest commandment. And if it is truly the greatest commandment, shouldn't everything in our lives be centered around that greatest of commandments? This is the greatest. Nothing else is greater. I think I could spend the rest of my life just studying the greatest commandment and never get there. Am I allowed to say that as a pastor? I think I could preach every Sunday for the rest of my life the greatest commandment and some of us still will never speak to our neighbors. And some of us will never reconcile with some people that we should reconcile with. And some of us will never get to that place where we are truly loving God with our entire being. But it's the most important thing. The greatest of commandments. So we saw that if we want to be on mission of seeking and saving the lost, it has got to come from, from the, from, it's got to come from connecting with God and connecting with other people in a meaningful way because those are of the utmost importance in our faith. So we saw that the mission of hearing well done from God is directly related to seeking and saving the lost. If we want to be a church, if we want to be individuals that are on mission, that has got to come from connecting with God and others in a meaningful way. And today what I want us to do is we're going to look at some scripture today from a letter near the end of the New Testament. It's a letter called 1 Timothy. If you want to kind of open up to there now in your Bible, you can. You could just leave your finger there or just kind of have it open on your mobile device. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. If you don't know where that is, just go right to the very end of your Bible and just start flipping back to the right. It's right near the end. You should be able to find that easily enough. And as you're kind of getting there, I want us today to talk about goals. Not goal! Not that. Um, Because if I tried to make it a sports sermon, I'd get a lot of emails on Monday saying that's not how sports work. Because I don't know how sports work. Okay, I I go to hockey games. I love when people invite me to hockey games. Like, oh, offside. It's offside. I mean, the guy, I don't get it. There's lines. I don't know what the lines are for, and it doesn't make any sense to me. But I go anyways because I like hanging out with people. But it's not about goals in the sports sense, but I'm talking about goals that we make in our lives. Now, normally at this time of year, what I do is I, I kind of ask you to raise your hand saying, how many of you have made a New, year, New Year's resolution? I have asked that question in this church for at least eight years in a row. And you guys do not make New Year's resolutions. You don't. I think every year there's one hand, maybe two. So I'm not going to ask that this year. Because I think deep down we all know New Year's resolutions are a colossal waste of time. Because usually by now, January the 19th, it's already broken. We've already been eating the extra large poutine, even though we swore we would never do that again. We already promised we wouldn't fight with our spouse, and we had a huge one last night. You know, we break these resolutions by now. But I don't want to talk about these resolutions. I want to talk about goals. How many of you, at some point in your life, you made a goal? Whether it was a financial goal, a career goal, a relationship goal, something at school, you made a goal. Now, a goal is very different than a dream. Do you know what the difference between a goal and a dream is? It's a plan. See, I can dream of being out of debt. I can dream of being healthy. I can dream of having these restored relationships, of broken relationships that are healed. But without actions, without a plan, 
the dream doesn't become a goal. I remember years ago when my daughter Samantha was born, my wife Danielle and I had the goal of changing our lives in such a way that Danielle could then stay home with the kids. You know, we both had careers. We were both successful in our careers and what we were doing, and our life was built around a two-income family and the perks that come with being a two-income family. And we decided we had the goal of changing that so that Danielle could stay home for a few years with the kids when they were little. Now, in order to meet the goal, we needed a plan. We couldn't just dream it. We wanted to make it happen. Now, when you have a goal, sometimes there's little small changes, little things that you can do to make your goal happen. One of the little things that we had to change was is I no longer could go to McDonald's for coffee in the morning. It's a small change. The sacrifices we make for our children as parents sometimes, you know, is that I'm going to make coffee instead. And not only am I going to make the coffee at home, we're going to buy the cheap no-brand coffee. Okay, and I'm going to drink that just so I can save a few pennies a day. So we make small changes to our lives in order to accomplish the goal. But sometimes in our lives, in your life, in my life, small changes, small things, small steps is not enough. Sometimes we need to make a major shift and a major change if you want to see that goal happen. And in that example, we had to sell our house. Now, you might be saying, who cares? You sell a house. No, no, you don't seem to understand. (laughs) I loved that house. You see, it's the only house I've ever owned that was new. And I mean brand spanking new. I was there while they were building it, and I could oversee everything. I got to pick the cupboards. I got to pick the floors. I got to pick everything about it. I loved that house. Okay? And, um, and it was under this weird thing that I've never had since called a warranty that if a kind of a screw started coming through the drywall, I would just call someone and say there's a screw showing and they would come and fix it and screw it in and remud it and repaint the whole room. You see, ever since then, I have owned (laughs) fixer-uppers. I love fixer-uppers because they're affordable. I hate fixer-uppers because I do all the (laughs) fixing-upping. Okay? It's exhausting. But I do it. But that was a major change. If we wanted the goal of Danielle to be able to stay home for a few years, it it meant liquidating, it meant selling, it meant paying off student loans, it meant clearing off mortgages, and it meant being able to go from this much income to this much income and live off of that. That's a big change. In all of the goals that you and I set up in our lives, there's small little tweaks we make, and then sometimes there's big major changes that we need to do. And so what I want to ask you today, when you think back on the goals that you make, as you think about this sermon series that we've been doing, or just even what's going on in the world today, what you see in the world, and when you look at your faith, I want to ask, do you have any spiritual goals? You see, we make goals in business all the time. We make goals in finances. We make goals in our education. We make goals in some relationships. 
But I don't always hear from people who have spiritual goals. That they actually have a plan to grow spiritually. And I think that's one of the ruts that we fall into as Christians in our world today. Is we just settle for a faith that's fine. A faith that's good enough. A faith that has worked fine up until this point. But it's not growing. We don't have a goal. We don't have a plan. We don't have a strategy. So what I want us to look at is to look at this text from 1 Timothy. And then we're going to unpack that text a little bit. Then we're going to look at some of the key areas of ministry that we have that we've specifically put into place to help you realize the goals that you have in your life to grow spiritually. So let's look here from 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to start reading here in verse 1. So this is what we read. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come from hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry in order and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truth of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and we strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, I talk to a number of Christians, and they share with me things like, my faith is good enough. My walk with God is fine. And I hear what they're saying. When people use that language, I get it. It's because we go, well, no, my, it, things are good. My life is good. There aren't any big challenges. I'm not going through any kind of crisis. You know, I go to church. I serve. I, I give. Uh, I use my, my abilities, my talents. I'm reading my Bible. My, my faith is fine. 
And there's something about that language that that breaks my heart a little bit. It's the idea that we as followers of Jesus would settle for a life that is simply good enough. That we would settle for church ministry as long as we can pay our bills, as long as people are happy and they're not uprising against the pastor and driving him out of town, as long as we've got a decent kids program and a decent youth ministry, that that's good enough. And the reason it breaks my heart a little bit is because nowhere in the Bible do I ever get the sense of that language. Like even look at the text that we just read. It uses words like persevere, give yourself to this holy, be diligent. Like these are big action-driven words. They're not settle for something less kind of words. When Paul preaches and Paul teaches the church that God wants to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine through his power at work in the church, what do you think Paul means by that? That maybe God wants to do more than we could ask or imagine. Maybe because the power of God is really in the church, to accomplish the mission of God through the church. I don't think that's a big stretch in the translation. I don't think that's, oh, Pastor Kevin, you're overreading those texts. It's kind of what it says. Right? And so I want to just unpack a little bit of this, but before I do, just want to kind of explain the context of this letter. Especially if you're new to the Bible, hopefully this will be helpful. And if you're not new to it, if you're a student of the Bible for a long time, hopefully this is a good refresher for you, right? Um, this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Now, some people ask me when we're studying the Bible, say, why is it that sometimes a letter has a name and the letter is, sometimes the heading of the letter is who it's written by and other times it's who it's written to? And other times it's the name of the city. Why is it like that? That's a great question. The answer is, I don't know. It's just the way people smarter than me put this together. And the way it kind of just fell with church tradition. And then sometimes people go, well, how am I supposed to know the difference between it being the author or it being the recipient? Real easy. Read it. (laughs) Read it. Because usually in chapter 1, verse 1, it will answer that question for you. It'll say, hi, this is Paul writing to you, Timothy. Oh, okay, this is written to. Or it might be, hi, I'm John writing to you. Oh, it's called John. It usually answers that question right away at the beginning. So it's not this big twist or some big kind of conspiracy thing that we're trying to mess everybody up. It's just how we kind of put the Bible together. So this is written from the Apostle Paul to a young leader named Timothy. Now, the Apostle Paul, just to refresh so we're all on the same page together, it's so important to remember when you study one of Paul's writings, is you have to remember who he was. Paul began as an enemy of the church. See, we paint pictures of Paul, we have statues of Paul, and we have all these amazing things, and we take Paul as this incredible figure, this incredible godly man. And you have to remember that he was once an enemy of the church. 
that he was given the mandate to persecute and arrest Christians. He viewed the Christian movement as an atrocity, as something that must be destroyed and extinguished. It was a blight against the teaching of his people. Despised it. He was zealous against it. And on his way to arrest Christians, he had a supernatural encounter with the resurrected Jesus, who struck him blind. And he had to kind of go off and spend a time out and reevaluate which side of God's work was he on. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he becomes this incredibly zealous leader. Just like he was zealous against the church, suddenly he's now zealous for the church. And what happens sometimes with people when they're new in the faith, and they're so zealous and they're so excited, sometimes those people do a lot of damage too. (laughs) And they say a lot of crazy things and upset a lot of people and make it hard for people to bring people to Jesus. So the church people kind of take Paul and say, well, Paul, 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 we love you, we love you, we love you, but... Let's just kind of explain to you what this scripture really means. Let me just kind of spend a little bit more time explaining this and discipling you. So they spent about three years teaching Paul to understand his background, understand what he believed as a Jewish leader, and now what it means on this side of the cross with the resurrected Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church. So they discipled him. Sometimes we forget that part. I have the Holy Spirit and I can say whatever I want. No, it doesn't doesn't work that way all the time. Sometimes the anti-God person and the overly zealous person we see in church history can both cause damage. You've got to be wise about certain things. So that's who Paul is. Someone who was against the church, someone who had to be mentored and discipled and guided and now is taking that mentorship and mentoring other people. He didn't just take it for himself and use it for himself. He's now passing it on to the next generation. And so the next, the next generation is Timothy. What we learn about Timothy is that he was a co-worker with Paul. He was a companion with Paul on his mission trips. And we learn that Timothy's parents, his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. Now the text doesn't go into this at all, but knowing what that world and that culture was like back then, that couldn't have been easy. Having one Jewish family member and then a non-Jewish member member of the family, having a mother who believed that there's one God, only one God, maker in heaven and the earth, who has to be worshipped and there needs to be sacrifice to atone from sin, and then having a father who believes anything goes, there's all these gods, there's all these ideas, there's whatever you want. Okay, I would assume there'd be tension in the home. And the reason I know that is because, I mean, I, I walk with a lot of people, and the reality is, is you know, when people say, hey, I'm going to marry someone and their faith is radically different than mine, but that's okay, we love each other, and we're going to work through it, I, I, I get it. You, you love each other, and I will walk with you, but I tell them, expect trouble. Expect it. It's going to happen. And it's not going to happen when you're in the honeymoon stage and you love each other and everything's awesome. It's going to happen when marriage has been marriage and you just have life happen. I remember I was walking with a couple like this. uh, The guy was a Christian, married an atheist woman, and everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine until he felt led by God to tithe. 
hey, honey, I'm going to give 10% of our money to an organization that you hate and despise and think is a joke. You think that caused some marriage problems for them? Yes, absolutely. So Timothy, young leader, understanding the two worlds of Jew and Gentile, is sent to the city of Ephesus to be a leader there. Now the city of Ephesus, this is why this is important, why Timothy can understand both worlds, is Ephesus is in trouble. The church is not doing so good there. Now you have to understand, you've got to remember, this was written 40, 50, 60 years, somewhere in there, after the ministry of Jesus. The church is brand spanking new. And what was happening in the city of Ephesus is the church was already drifting away from the mission of Jesus in 40 years. It's brand new. There are still people alive who walked with Jesus. There are people alive who ate with Jesus, who were discipled by Jesus. And the church already began to drift away from the mission of seeking and saving the lost. And already started making it all about me. And started doing these things. The leadership becoming obsessed with promoting themselves, of how smart and educated they are. The leadership protecting their privileges as leaders. They were no longer proclaiming the mission of Jesus, that there is a God who loves you, that Jesus has come to reconcile God and man, that there is only one way to God the Father. They began to focus on things that Paul calls of no importance. And see, and the Greek word for no importance means it's a colossal waste of your time. And you're splitting churches over this. The Kevin paraphrase would be, stop it. It's of no importance. They're arguing over genealogies. Who was married to who and what kid came from who and what's the family tree of this and is this person connected to that person? They were introducing Greek myths into the church. They were creating special rules about marriage and creating all this legalism about marriage. They were creating all of these rules and legalism about food. They were becoming conceited. They're being motivated by greed. They loved to argue about theology. I like to argue about theology because I'm right all the time. You see, the tensions that can arise real easy in all of us. And Paul sends this young man into that environment. And this is what he writes to him in that environment, in that context, knowing who Paul is, knowing who Timothy is. And Paul's entire ministry was all about fighting for what is right and what is true in the church. You see, there were other times, and we can read about this in the book of Acts, where even the apostles struggled with what is the mission and purpose of the church. Even the apostles 
had to wrestle with this to make sure that they were keeping their vision correct. And they were sitting there going, and there was this movement going, hey, that's great that the Gentiles are coming to Jesus. It's great that the Holy Spirit does that work over there. But then they still need to keep Jewish law and Jewish commandments because really Jesus is only for Jewish people. And then the Jewish leaders are going, um, we haven't kept any of those rules. So why would we expect them to keep all these rules? And there's this huge argument, and Paul shows up, and he's explaining what's going on with Barnabas. And then James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, says these words. He says, it is my decree that we will not make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to Christ. That is Paul's mission. Every single letter drips with the call. Church, stop making it difficult for Gentiles to turn to Christ. (laughs) The way we do things, the way we plan things, the way we like things. (laughs) And this is what Paul's charge is to Timothy. And he gives him a bunch of instructions of how this should play out in his life as a leader. How it should play out in the lives of all leaders. How it should play out in the life of the church. I mean, in verse 16, look what he says. He says, persevere in these. Again, not a passive word. Not a, eh, if I have time. Eh, if it fits my schedule. Eh, Lord willing. That's my favorite. Would you like to serve in this ministry? Eh, Lord willing. He's willing, it says in the Bible. I'll pray about that. You don't need to pray it. It says to do it. (laughs) Pull up my hair. That's why I don't have any. Okay? Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, some people get a little stuck on that verse. Did Paul just say I have to do all this work so I can be saved? No, you have to understand it in context of the full letter and Paul's other writings. What Paul's saying is the evidence of your life, which he talks about. Other people should see the evidence of your life. That is evidence of your salvation. And the evidence of your salvation, God will use it to save others. So the big idea that I want us to unpack as we finish this series off is this. Like Paul says to Timothy, we train in godliness for the blessing of others. The reason we do everything that we do as a church is to train you in godliness, so that you can be a blessing for others. A couple of years, a few years ago now, maybe about five, six years ago, there was a major event that had come to the city of Ottawa for Christian marriage, and they brought in these very famous speakers, authors, and I was invited to be a part of the leadership there. And I'm in a room with about 80 other pastors in the city, and they were talking about the importance of bringing in this huge conference, huge expense. They were looking for funding from it from all different churches and they, and because they wanted to see the marriages of Ottawa, the Christian marriages of Ottawa, to become more godly. And I was like, oh, yeah, we need this, we need this. And I sit in there and I go, and they look at me, uh, what's your name again? No one knows my name here. I'm kind of okay with that. I like to be off the radar. And I go, uh, to what end? Well, what do you mean? I mean, we're going to spend all this money, 
and we're going to, like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we're going to put on a conference to see Christian marriages to become more godly. To what end? Like, well, to see Christian marriages be more godly. I'm like, but to what end? I mean, I, I want every Christian to experience a godly marriage. I want a godly marriage, absolutely. But to what end? Well, according to Paul, it's so other people can see my marriage. And people can see there's something different about Danielle and I because we're submitting to the will of God in our marriage. And we're submitting to one another in mutual love and submission, using our gifts and our talents to bless one another, to love each other even when we don't feel very loving, and all of these things that the Bible teaches us. Why? So that it will be an example and a blessing to someone else's marriage. So someone can see there's something different about them. That's Paul's heart. Everything we do to train the church in godliness, are we blessed by it? And do we receive perks and benefits for it? Absolutely. But its ultimate goal is not about us. It's to be a blessing to other people. So we make the training of godliness an important part of our ministry here. And so I want us to kind of unpack this a little bit, and I want us to talk about some of the methods that we use here. And now the challenge with methods in any church, in our church, in every church, the challenge of of, of a method is that what starts to happen over time, and it doesn't take long, it can happen within a year, is we begin to love the method. And we begin to defend the method, even if the method stops working. When we're sitting there and when we evaluate ministry, we go, well, you know, this ministry, it's not really making disciples. Helping people love God more. It's not helping them love people more. It's not helping to lead people to Christ. It's kind of just running. And then you decide to shut it down. Oh, you can't do that. Well, why can't you? Well, because we love the method. We have to love the mission. The mission is what we love, not the method. A method is a method. Methods come and go. Just this past week in staff meeting, we were talking about Sunday morning, and someone made the comment, well, you know what we should do? Because a lot of people keep coming in late, you know, when we sing the songs. So we should do the sermon first, because everyone wants to be there for the sermon. You don't mind missing a song or two, but man, no one wants to miss the sermon. Thank you for that, by the way. I appreciate it. And um, so I was like, let's put the sermon first, and then we'll do the songs after. And I'm sitting there, and I'm calculating, how many emails will I get? If I do that, and I'm like, isn't there a Bible verse that says three songs, an announcement, a greet your neighbor, and then the sermon? <laughs> but try changing those things. We, and we joke and we laugh. But it's like, but as soon as you make a change like that, oh, what do you mean you put the drum over there? The drum's supposed to be in the middle. <laughs> what do you mean you change the backdrop? Oh, you know, we love methods. So we've got to be careful of the method. <laughs> So the methods that I'm going to be sharing with you today are the same three methods that I've been talking about since I started here nine years ago. We've tweaked them a lot, but it's still the same three things. Because we actually believe that this is biblical, that if you do these things, it will help train you in godliness. So three things we ask you to do as a part of our church family. To make Sunday a priority, to join a life group, and find a ministry to serve in. 
Sunday, life group, serve. It used to be small group, but then we changed it to life group. And I broke my three S's, so it looks, doesn't look as good on a logo anymore. So I, maybe i got to change the other two to L's. But uh, anyways, that's another sermon for another time. But it's Sunday service, life group, and serve. This is our training plan to train us in godliness so that we can be a blessing to other people, that we can love God more, that we can love each other more, that we can deal with the sin in our life, and that we can be well-equipped for the mission of seeking and saving the lost. I want to start talking a little bit about Sunday. We talked a lot about Sunday last week when we talked about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That there is something supernatural that happens when the children of God gather to bring praise and adoration to God publicly and together. It's a supernatural encounter. The Bible teaches us that when we worship God that way, that we are participating in the same worship that is happening in heaven. That we join into something holy. That we join into something outside of ourselves. And that's why Paul teaches when non-Christians see that, they go, wow, this is not just a concert. (laughs) That God is truly among them. But there's also a second part of Sunday, and it's the, what I'm kind of doing right now. It's the preaching part. It's the reading of Scripture part. Right? Paul charges Timothy to make the preaching and teaching of God's Word and the public reading of Scripture a priority. Look what he says. He says, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Devote yourself. Again, not passive, not just half it fits, if I feel like it. If you devote yourself to that, because it's important, because there's something different that happens when we gather corporately, publicly for this. I mean, the truth of the matter is, you could stay home today. You can't. And you can hear better preaching than mine. And I'm not saying that because, oh, woe is me, I'm not any good. I just understand there are smarter people on this planet. People have been doing it longer. People who have a whole research team working behind them, helping them with their illustrations and all this stuff. There's incredible Bible teaching available that we have access to on our phones that we can watch in the bathroom. I'm not the only one who brings his phone to the bathroom. Okay, we all do it confession time we bear our sins to each other okay there's so much great teaching out there same as worship there's amazing music out there amazing songs of praise we could easily stay home so why don't we i remember a couple of years ago when the elders and i we were working on our strategic plan and where we're going as a church and where we wanted to put more energy and resources to to improve the ministry we were talking about sunday to improve sunday and we, asked, we actually asked ourselves, and we had to wrestle with it theologically. Why do we even gather on Sunday? Why spend money on a building? Why spend money on lights and sound and equipment and all this stuff? What is its purpose? Can we articulate it? And we figured, we, we did. We had to come up with, we gather this way to bring praise and glory to God, to meet with God and hear from God publicly together because that's what the bible teaches 
there's just something different that happens. That when the scriptures are proclaimed publicly, see, it's great to have a private devotion. It's great to read your Bible privately at home every day. I think every Christian should read their Bible every day, even if it's only one verse. Do it. One verse. And just sit in one verse. That's all it takes. Okay? But there's something different about the public reading of it. Because the scriptures were written for community. It was a way, it was, it's written to a community. From a community. It's building up a community. And that's how we learn to love one another, is in community. Right? The preaching of God's word, there's these Christian movements right now, and, and again, it's not that I'm in love with the method. The methods come and go. But the preaching of God's word, I think, is a biblical mandated thing for the church. Kind of the movement of, well, we should get rid of preaching, and we should all just gather, and we could all just have like Q&A, and we could have like discussion, and well, I think this, and I think this, and I think this. There's a place for that, but it's not this place. Because there's, again, something supernatural that happens in the proclamation of God's word. See, Paul starts this off talking about spiritual things deceiving spirits and demons. You see, I'm teaching this preaching course right now. We've got about a dozen people from the church are going through it just to teach them about preaching and improving on that. And we're going through this video curriculum, and the teacher on the video kind of made this statement, and, and it just resonated with me, that if nobody would have showed up today because of the snow, I'd still preach this sermon. You know Why? Because the demons are listening. Because the spiritual realm is listening. And I will proclaim the kingdom of God. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That nobody comes to the Father except through him. I am preaching against these deceiving spirits. I'm preaching against these lying demons that would have you believe otherwise. (laughs) And if there wasn't another human ear in here to hear it, we will still preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. Because it's a spiritual thing. It's a part of our training. It's a part of our training. Okay? Of making Sunday a priority. The second part is life groups. Over the years, we've made a lot of tweaks and changes to our life group ministry. When I first started here at Greenbelt, um, I wasn't brought in as the lead pastor. Uh, if you were here you know, almost 10 years ago when I started, I was brought in as the teaching pastor. I had two primary parts of my role. It was to preach and teach the Word of God, to disciple people, and also to provide spiritual care to the church. And then when I started, I remember kind of the elders, you know, and we kind of had a list of names and kind of here's all the people that you should visit and meet with them and pray for them. And I was like, whoo, there's a lot of names on that list. And then you start meeting people and it's like, oh, could we meet again? Absolutely. Could we meet again? Absolutely. Could we meet again? Absolutely. And then suddenly it was like, and then more people would start coming and then can I meet with you? Absolutely. Hey, could we have lunch together? Absolutely. Hey, can we have breakfast? Absolutely. <laughs> So suddenly it started like getting to the point where I was meeting with everything, you know, with a lot of people about everything. Can I talk to you about this? Can I talk to you about this? Can I talk to you about this? And suddenly, very quickly, it suddenly becomes there's too many people for one person to take care of. So then we, we got smart, and then we brought in Danielle, and we hired Danielle to be the director of congregational care. So, okay, great. Now, Danielle, now you take care of everybody. 
<laughs> and that only lasts a while for so long too. And then we sat down as leaders. And we said, this is this model in the long run isn't sustainable. The pastor burnout rate in our country is 85%. The percent of pastors leave ministry after five years and never come back to it. Maybe we're doing something wrong, but it's all we know. We hire a pastor to take care of everybody. <laughs> it's what we know. It's the method. And it's like, well, don't love the method, love the mission. And so we made tweaks and changes over the years that I primarily care for. I care for the elders. I care for the deacons. I care for the staff. I care for key lay leaders. And then I handle the emergencies. If I show up and visit you at the hospital and you haven't gotten an update from your doctor yet, uh-oh. <laughs> it might be bad news, okay? Not always the case. But I handle the crisis. And what we've done is focus on raising up more people so that the church cares for one another. It's never, it's not biblical that one person cares for everyone. We're three services now, dozens of people joining us online as well. We need to be a church that cares for one another. And so we made that shift as well. That's why I say unapologetically, if you're not in a life group, you're actually not under the care ministry of this church. Because we want you connecting with someone, people praying with you, walking with you, bringing you a meal when you need one. All of the way that we just care for each other as Christian friends, as brothers and sisters. If you go, well, I don't need a group, it's your choice. I can't make you, but understand you're outside of that care that we think is such a vital part of our training. Because if we're supposed to love one another, we got to learn to do life together. So we tweak that. We've made a couple of tweaks, you know, where we ask all of the groups to, you know, in September to study what we go through on Sunday morning. Like, take the teachings of Sunday and talk about it during the week. We intentionally make all of our study material based around our mission of knowing, living, and sharing Jesus. Know Jesus, okay? Study, spend some time studying the Bible. Live Jesus. Okay, now what does this text mean for my life? What do I need to tweak in my life? And then the share Jesus. Now, how would I ever share this idea with a non-Christian? As an example, remember we did a sermon on giving, on tithing. And that share Jesus part. Like explain tithing to a non-Christian who hates the church. That's a great question to wrestle with with your life group before you actually have to have that conversation at work. <laughs> right? So it's part of our training. So if you're not in a group, join one. There's going to be someone in the cafe after the service. You can run there. They've got the list of all the groups. You can find which one best fits your calendar. And then finally is we ask people to serve. We ask people to serve, right? Paul instructs Timothy to use his gifts. Use your gifts, Timothy. You were blessed by God with this gift, not just simply for your benefit, but to be a blessing to other people. And we want you to use your gift. You see, I will grow more spiritually when you use your gift. I need you to use your gift for my spiritual growth, just like you need my gift to bless you in your spiritual growth. That's what being a family is about. It's not on one or two people to carry the ball and do all the work. We do this together. We all have gifts. We all have talents and we're all needed, regardless of what that gift or talent is, right? And the thing about spiritual gifts is, and the thing about 
is sometimes we want the answer first before we sign up. It's like, well, how will God use me? And if you could explain how God will use me and show me everything, then I'll take that information and then I'll weigh it to see if I should do it or not. (laughs) That's not how it works. I kind of know, like I've seen how God works in my own life when it comes to serving. If I had no clue what God was going to do until I stepped into it. Sometimes literally. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I remember when I was a brand new Christian attending a church in Montreal, my pastor came up to me and he said, Kevin, I'd like you to join the leadership of our men's ministry. I was like, cool. I don't even really know what that means. I, I was a new Christian. I didn't really know what men's ministry meant, all these kind of things. And so I got together. There was one other leader. His name was Steve. We became really, really good friends. And our whole discipleship, basically our whole ministry plan was we're going to read a psalm. We're going to pray for each other. And then we're going to tell each other to stop being stupid. That was our ministry strategy. We're going to read a psalm. We're going to pray. And they're going to say, stop being stupid. Because we were stupid. We were young guys, and, and we were stupid. We were stupidly watching stuff on the Internet we knew we shouldn't watch. We were stupidly treating our wives. We were stupidly ignoring our kids. We were stupid. So we just lovingly, and I'm not saying that would be my ministry strategy today. I'm a little older, a little wiser. But when I was in my 20s, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> and we saw people getting saved and marriages being restored and guys getting off of pornography. It was incredible but I never would have done it. God, let me rephrase that. God would never have done it if I wouldn't have had the faith to trust him that he would do it. Sometimes you don't know what God will do when you step into a ministry to serve. You know, it's like, why don't you like mentor some teenagers? Well, I don't know if God could use me that way. You won't know till you try. And we have a process to help you. Or discipling kids, leading kids to Jesus. Well, I don't know if God will use me. You won't know until you try. Over being a life group leader, you won't know until you try. You won't know until you try. That's the way it works. And we want to help you with that and disciple you in that. And then just conclude. Be diligent with this. Give yourself wholly to this. And wholly means your whole person so that everyone might see your progress. That's the desire for the church. That's Paul's desire for Timothy, for the leaders there, for the city of Ephesus, and for Ottawa, for Greenbelt, for me, for you, that will train for godliness so that we can be a blessing to others. I'm going to invite our worship team up, and they're going to lead us in one last song. And as they're singing, I, I get it. I understand a sermon like this and can feel a little bit like a guilt trip. I get it. Okay? That's not my intention. <laughs> my intention is to just show you what the Bible says unapologetically and then trust that the Spirit of God is going to speak to you and tell you what your spiritual goal should be. <laughs> Maybe for some of you, it's, yeah, you know, Sunday's kind of an afterthought. <laughs> Or maybe even the heart that you come in with on Sunday. Maybe you need to spend a little bit more time just working on that before you come in. Maybe there's a goal there for you in some kind of capacity. Maybe you've been hearing about life groups forever and ever and ever, and you go, I won't do it, I won't do it, I won't do it. Maybe this is the time to try it. Guilt-free, try it for five weeks. 
didn't work for you, we'll find a different one. We'll work with you on it. The goal is not to guilt, but to, this is what it says. And then all of us, myself included, have to look at what it says and say, now what do I do with this? So as Paul and the team lead us in song, just listen. What might God be saying to you? What goals does God have for your life? What priorities do you need to make to grow spiritually this year? To be a blessing to other people. To show the love of God to this world. To your workplace, to your school, to your colleagues, wherever that might be. And maybe for some of you, the first step is actually to come to Jesus. So there, I've been doing this church thing, I've heard this. And sometimes that, you know, when we talk about the goal, sometimes you got to make a big change. Sometimes that big change is a new heart. Let's say, I, I actually want this kind of heart. I want a heart for God. I want a heart for God's world. I want a heart for the lost. God, give me that heart. And the Bible says, it may seem like a big thing and a big change, but it's actually really easy to do. You just say, God, forgive me, a sinner. And today I give you my life. Make me new. Use me for your glory. That easy. If you do that today, I'd love to talk to you in the cafe afterwards. We'd love to kind of help you get plugged into the life of the church here. And for the rest of us, as, let me just pray. The team gets ready to sing, lead us in song. Let's pray. So, Father God, we praise you and thank you for your word and how it speaks, how it challenges, how it rebukes, how it corrects. But, God, we praise you for it. Thank you for the correcting and rebuking that you brought even into my life this week as I've spent time in this text. God, I thank you for your mercies and for your love. And Father, I pray that you would speak to all of us today. Help us to be a blessing to other people. Help us to persevere. Help us to train so that the world would know we're different because of the work that you've done in us. So be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We train for godliness, for the blessing of others. If you're here today and you would like someone to pray for you, prayer room in the left side of the room there. If you're joining us online, send us a direct message and we'll be praying for you. Check out the booth in the cafe about joining a group. And hopefully we'll see some of you upstairs for lunch afterwards. Have an amazing week, trusting that God wants to do amazing things in you as you are on the mission of seeking and saving the lost for his glory and our joy. Have an amazing week. God bless you.